Take your Bibles, Genesis chapter 12. I want us to think together for a few moments this morning on what it looks like to fall from faith. Matter of fact, I'd like to take that freedom that we have as Americans, and I want to make up my own word today. Fallier. It is the process of falling. What does it take to fall from faith? What does it look like when someone falls from faith? We don't have to look too far to find an answer to that. We go to Scripture. We go to the Old Testament. We find some of those heroes of our faith. For instance, King David, and we all know David's story where when he should have been off fighting battles as kings should be doing, according to that passage of Scripture. It says that he looked across the way and he fell in his faith. We look at the New Testament, we find one of the great villains of all time, a guy by the name of Judas Iscariot, one of those followers of Jesus who at some critical point fell in what he believed. It's easy for us to see him and throw rocks at him, but it's a little more surprising when we find another one of Jesus' disciples, a guy by the name of Simon Peter, who fell from faith and experienced failure in his faith just like we do. We all know how that ends. We've seen it before. We've seen it in the public sphere. We've seen those great moral failures of high-profile evangelists and preachers and just regular people. The fact of the matter is that people of faith fall. I think it's a good thing for us to ask ourselves and to deal with the question, what triggers that kind of a fall? Because the reality is that if anybody is capable of falling, then we fit into that mix as well. So I give you as exhibit A in this uh, lesson, this ongoing lesson that we have about what it means to live by faith, uh, exhibit A, the guy by the name of Abram also becomes the example of what it looks like to fall from faith. So far, so good. As we've been following Abram's life in Genesis chapter 12, we find that God has called him out of Mesopotamia, out of what is the current uh, Iraq, and moved him around that fertile crescent to the eastern shores of the Mediterranean and then down into that strip of land known as Canaan. We would call it modern-day Israel. And so far, so good. God has spoken to him, and Abram has believed God, and he's followed God's lead, and then we've come right smack into this passage of today that sure looks like he experienced failure in his faith. Look at verse 9, Genesis chapter 12. After we left Abram in verse 8, and he's between Bethel and Ai, and he builds this altar, and he worships God there. Verse 9 says, and Abram journeyed on. Literally, he walking, walked on, journeying on towards the Negev, it says. That really kind of becomes the focal point of the message today. Actually, this is less of a formal sermon and more of a let's kind of reason together, almost like a uh, just a discussion, if you will, even though it's largely one-sided because you didn't get the microphone. I did. But you should have gotten one of these when you came in, all right? If you did not get one, then... um, You can pretend that you did, but actually be better if you had one, you can follow along because what I want to do today, I I told a guy in the earlier service that I kind of gave in to the dark side. A lot of preachers like to hand out this kind of stuff and you follow along and you, you know, take notes and I don't normally do that. There's a couple of pretty good reasons that I don't, 
But today I did because it's a little more complicated. I wanted you to be able to follow my thoughts, and I'm going to have to make tracks because of the time. And so what we're going to do is we're going to work our way through this top to bottom from the left side first. We'll go to the middle of the page, then we'll go to the right side and come down that one. We'll fill in these blanks, and the slides that we have today will help you to know what goes in the blanks. If you miss them, uh, then you'll get them from me some other time. I'm happy to sell my notes to you to see if you're listening. Um, Okay, so, but, but the thing that drives this is the basic question that comes out of verse 9. Now, we got some guys passing out, so if you didn't get one, raise your hand and somebody will get it to Wow, look at all these. All right, so you should have plenty back there. If you don't, you have to at least look on with somebody, but you can see it and we'll get it to you before it's all said and done, okay? So here's the deal. Coming out of verse 9, where it says that Abram journeyed on, the language there for us is, is really, I don't, intense is not the word, as much as it is alarming. It, it's written in such a way that, that jumps off of the page to us, or at least it should. When we understand where he has been in verse 8 and what God has done in the first eight verses of this chapter, and then we find him moving on, and especially those things that come after that, begs the question for us, why did he go? Did God tell Abram to move from where he was at Bethel and Ai? Or did Abram just take it on himself to do that? I I think it's a valid question. We're not going to find the answer in the text itself, although I think that there are some pretty good indicators there that I'll talk about before it's all said and done. But here's why I want to do this and why I think it's important enough to do the little more complicated approach. Every one of us will find ourselves in this story on either side of the middle of the page. Either you're going to be one of those people here today who somewhere along the line, even though God spoke his truth into your life, you decided to go your own way. And that would put you on the left side. If God did not tell Abram to move, then Abram is on his own with what he's doing. Now, he's not alone in it. God never abandons him in it, but Abram's making the choices. He's driving the boat. And things don't go that well for him, as we'll see in just a few moments. Or, you may not be that person. That's the case you'll find yourself on the other side of the page where God is, in fact, moving him. The destinations are the same. The situations are the same, either side. But sometimes God moves us into these places that carry inherent danger for us, and especially for the choices we make relative to our faith and how we fall or follow whichever choice we choose to make. So let's just kind of walk through it, and I'll highlight those things as we get to it. And as I said, I'm aware of the time today, and so I'll keep making tracks so that we don't get bogged down. Here's the deal to start with. The situations are the same, but the perceptions that we take into the situations of our life make all the difference in the world. Here's the fundamental question for you to let hover in your thinking as we walk through this today. Where's God and what's going on with you today? Let's pick up reading. Verse 10. And Spencer, I'm just going to read through the whole thing. I don't know if that was in the slides or not. So we're going to go all the way through the end of the chapter here, beginning in verse 10. After we find him moving towards the Negev, verse 10 says, Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. 
And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai's wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister. Gentlemen, do not try this at home. (laughs) Say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you. And that my life will be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. For her sake, he, that is Pharaoh, dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Let's walk our way through the left side as you look down this little flow chart. If God, in fact, in verse 9, did not tell Abram to move, and Abram, it goes rogue here, and he's out on his own making his own decisions, it leads him to these three troubling places. Bethel Ai, that's where we start, actually. The question there for us is, okay, so why did he leave there? Well, let's tackle that. Why why would he leave there? Come back to remembering exactly what has happened. He is now in that central part of Palestine, of Canaan, of Israel, of what some people call the Holy Land. He finds himself right smack in the middle of the place where God has said, this is what I'm going to give to your people, those who come after you. It's the hill country. If you want a good general point of reference about what that looks like in real life, go to the hill country of Texas, and it looks a lot like that. There's lots of water. Well, not lots of water, but there is at least some water there, plenty of vegetation. That's the land that flows with milk and honey part that we find when we come to the Exodus and all of those things that we find in those passages of Scripture starting in the book of Exodus and on. That's where he is. But as we saw a couple of weeks ago as we looked at this, it's not all great for him right there because Abram has come in and he's built this place, this altar to Yahweh, smack dab in the middle of this roadway between Ai, which means the ruin, it's a place that had been occupied for a long period of time by then, and Bethel, which literally means the house of El, of El which is the Canaanite deity. In other words, it's a cultic worship center. So between this place called Ai and this worship place, Abram sets up camp in the middle. It's a dangerous place. The opposition that could be there and the threat factor that was there for him was significant for him. I believe that if he did not move because God told him to, then it's very likely that the reason he left is because of the threat that was his there. So let's follow this down from Bethel into that big box in the middle. What you have in that box is this enemy 
of our faith. It's the thing that if we give into it in our daily faith walk with God, we are likely to fall. I call it situational focus. It's that tendency that we have to take our eyes off of God and to move away from that promise that God has given us or the directive into our life, that clear, direct word from God into you, this is my plan for your life, walk in this way. When we take our eyes off of that and we shift it down and we begin to focus in on the condition of the situation around us, our faith is likely to fall. For some reason, maybe it's because we like ourselves a lot. We see the threats that are around us, and by the way, that's the part that we find the opposition and threat directly under uh, Bethel and Ai, that that part of our life when we find ourselves out there on the front lines of spiritual warfare, we tend sometimes to move our eyes off of God and right down into the situation around us. Let me give you a point of reference to that. We have these truths from God. I'll never leave you or forsake you. We find in the New Testament we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ our Lord. Right? You like those truths? Then why is it that we feel like when we go up against stuff in life, we, we retreat back sometime and think God's abandoned us somehow? Here's a point of reference for you. My mother was a public school teacher for a long time, measured in decades, if I remember right. And somewhere in the time frame of her being a public school teacher, it came to my awareness that there was pressure from the public sphere on public teachers about their faith and living their faith out. Now, here's something you need to know about my mom. Okay. Now, she was a pastor's wife for a long, 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 long time, and she was a great pastor's wife, probably second best ever. <laughs> but uh, my mom had this point of reference in her life. She believed that her ministry was into the lives of those kids in her classroom. I'll take it beyond that. It wasn't just the kids in her classroom. She also believed that her ministry was to the parents and the family members of those kids in her classroom. And even beyond that, to those other teachers and administrators, those people in that school building where she was assigned, that was her field of ministry. Whether you knew my mom or not, whether you know who she is, what she stands for, you would know in just a few minutes of talking with her that when she gets some idea like that in her mind. This is what she's about. She is a bulldog to pull it off. And so when those people started coming in saying, you know what, you can't really talk about Jesus in the classroom. You, you need to kind of tone it down with this talk about God in the classroom. My mom, in one way or another, maybe these direct words, maybe I'm just kind of putting my words on what she said, but here was her response to that. You just hide and watch me. You know why she did that? Because she knew that God had called her to that task. It was God's direct input for her. But she could have done, as I think Abram might have done here in Bethel Ai, 
She could have looked at the landscape of her life and said, yeah, you know, I don't know. It's too, it's too dangerous for me to be a visible, verbal witness for God. A lot of people fall in their faith when they get their situation focus so focused in on the danger that's around them that they just check it in. And even though we hear the voice of God and we know his input, somehow it pales in influence compared to the situation and the threat around us. Look at all of our teenagers. You go from here, some of you, into an environment and a school system where people desperately need to hear about Jesus Christ. And you could look at that as a kid, take it off of our teenagers and let's put it on you as an adult. You go into a workplace that is full of people who live in a secular society where God has no real place. And they desperately need to hear the words of life. And if you, and of course I could spend some time here walking through those passages where we know that we are his witnesses. That is God's specific input into our lives. And so we could look at that and get so focused on, well, it's dangerous. I I might lose my job. They they might laugh at me. I, I might not be popular anymore or might not ever be popular if you're not already. And our faith falls. We experience failure because we look at the situation more than we listen to the voice of God. Bethel Ai represents that, I think. So Abram, if in fact God did not tell him to move and we followed that line of thought, he decides to leave there. And he goes to a place that surely must be less dangerous because there will be less people there. Verse 9 says he journeyed on still going towards the Negev. Now you got to get this, okay, because the Negev is... uh, Uh, If you can imagine a place that gets a half an inch of rain every four million years, that's approaching what this place looks like. Uh, If you have uh, a Bible that has maps in the back, you can go look at this. It's around Beersheba. If you go right in the center of Canaan and Israel, uh, modern Old Testament Israel, New Testament Israel, where Jerusalem is, you drop straight south. You get out of that hill country that has a little more rain and water and that kind of stuff, and you get into this desert environment, and it's called the Negev. It's on the way to Egypt and to the Sinai Peninsula and, and places where there's just not a whole lot of rain. Now, why? Think about that for a second. Why would Abram leave the plush places of central Israel, Canaan in that time, why would he leave there and go out to the place that is a hostile environment? And the answer might be, that's what he was used to. That's what it looks like in Iraq. If you haven't seen those pictures, go look at those on YouTube or somewhere else. Abram is used to being in a place, not a whole lot of vegetation. Well, sure, up and down the Euphrates and Tigris River, there were places where they had learned to farm off of that. But just outside of that, it was desolate country. That's what the Negev is. Why would he go there? Maybe he had the same problem we have. The problem that we have tends to be, it may not be best, but I'm familiar with it. 
And so God can say to us, you know what? I have this in mind for you. I have plans to grow you and to prosper you. Yeah, you know, I get that, but I don't really know what that looks like over there, so I'll just take my mediocre life and be satisfied with it. That may be what's going on here. A little bit of conjecture tied to that, but we do know this. Abram left Bethel Ai and he went to the desert, which set him up for verse 10. As if living in the desert is not bad enough. Remember, I grew up in West Texas. One of the towns near Odessa is a town called No Trees. That tell you anything about where I grew up? I know what it's like to live in the desert. I like it better with trees. I don't understand why he wouldn't. But he left and he goes into the desert and verse 10 says, and while he's in the desert, a famine. You know what's worse than living in the desert? It's living in the desert and there's no food. Now there's a famine in the land. This represents the survival focus for us, I think. This is that middle box underneath situational focus. Sometimes we get so focused in on survival and attempted survival, as I like to say, that the voice of God seems very distant to us. I have to tell you, I got to give him some space here. Who can blame him, really? If I'm head of a family unit... We're in a place that doesn't have a whole lot of food in the first place and a famine hits. I get this part of him that says I've got to move on from here. I'll get to that in just a second. But let's make sure that we wear this really well. Abram is in a place, whether if it's own doing or not, we don't know. But if he moved on his own, he finds himself in a dry spot with no food. And it becomes a matter of survival for him and his focus turns to the situation. And so he goes the next step from there and that is he goes in verse 11 now when he was, uh, excuse me, last part of verse 10. So Abram went down to Egypt. Now, let's make sure that we get the, the flow here. Abram has been in a place, central Canaan, that God has said to him, I'm gonna give this to you, to your descendants. For some reason, he leaves that. He goes into the desert. Life gets hard in the desert. There's a good spiritual truth there. Life is always hard in the desert. And many of us are living here today, and we walked in here, and we've been living in the desert, spiritual desert of our lives for some of us many years. Life's hard in the desert. So Abram, in those circumstances, instead of turning to go back north, remember what's north from him? The Jordan River, the Sea of Gal- what later comes to be called the Sea of Galilee. There's life up there, and there's the promise of God up there. But Abram says, nope, let's go where everybody else is going in hard times. Let's go to Egypt. And so he launches out, and he gets to Egypt. But before he gets to Egypt, he begins to have to come to grips with the consequences of his decision. There's a spiritual truth in that for us. You never have the freedom to make a choice without also getting the consequences that come with it. And in our spiritual lives, those consequences become opportunity for failing faith. So he gets down there. He's about to go in. And he pulls his wife aside and says, you know that 
you know, we're really kind of like half brothers and sisters, right? So uh, I think let's do this. Just tell them that you're my sister. Don't tell them that you're my wife. Now, let me translate that. I think this is how women tend to interpret this. Okay, if I'm wrong, ladies, feel free to correct me later. But I, I think that a woman correct, uh, interprets that this way. Let me get this straight. You're going to lie about me to save your neck? Well, it's not really a lie, except it is a lie, uh, because it's not the whole truth. And so you're going to do this, and so you're going to sell me out so that you're safe. Do I get that right? This is that part where fear jumps into the middle of the equation for us. Very few things move us to failing faith like fear does. I wanted to use an example here of a situation Teresa and I had years ago, right after we got married. As a matter of fact, I was doing a lot of running in those days and went to another town to run a road race. And uh, while we were in this motel room in the middle of the night, some guy, apparently he had been uh, enjoying adult beverages for some time, uh, came and started trying to get into our hotel room. His, when his key didn't work, he started beating on the door and trying to you know, force his way in. And for just like this long, I, I, fear just jumped on me. Oh my goodness. And then I remembered that I had a 357 with me. And suddenly I wasn't afraid anymore. Uh, let me just say to those of us who have 357s or better, there are situations in life that a gun won't fix. And you can find yourself in situations where fear grips you and chokes the faith right out of you. Not many months before we moved here, I had a situation kind of like that. I had a medical condition that I had been largely ignoring longer than it should have been ignored. And when I told my wife about it, um, she almost killed me. Uh, and then we rushed to the hospital. You know when you go to an emergency room, if the attending physician sees you in anything less than four hours, you must not be too well. Uh, and in this case, they hustled me right into the exam room. The doctor was in within 15 minutes to see me. And uh, very gravely looked at me. He said, you will not be going home tonight. I've called the surgeon. He will be here shortly. We hope that this is in time. <laughs> now, you want an occasion for fear? When a doctor says that to you, you recognize this is out of my hands. I was telling this story in the earlier service and one of the ladies came up to me afterwards. She said, so how did it end up? Did you make it? Uh, <laughs> I guess the jury's still out. <laughs> Let me tell you something. You find yourself strapped down to a gurney with medical professionals scurrying around you, fear gets real in times like that. Life has a way of bringing situations to us that choke our faith. I think that if God did not tell Abram to move, this whole left side of that flow chart 
comes into stark focus for us. Choosing to walk away from God sets you up for failing faith. Let me quickly get to the other side. I know that I'm just almost out of time, so I'm going to fly through this much more quickly than I just did that side. But we don't have a whole lot of explanation to do of the areas. If, on the other hand, God, in fact, told Abram to move, there's nothing in the text to, to lead us to believe that he did or that he didn't. That's why both of these options are real for us. But to this point, God has told him every step of the way, do this, do this, move now, go ahead. But that's not the way this is written. So if God is in fact the one moving him, we have to ask, given everything that we've seen here and all of the danger and all of the compromising positions and all that kind of stuff that Abram finds him in, why would God do that to one of his children? Why would he move him on? And the answer to that now is in that big box. The answer is God regularly puts us into positions that are growth triggers for our faith. I've said it before. I'll say it again. God is much more interested in your growth than he is in your comfort. And so it's totally within the character of God to have said to Abram, okay, I want you to leave this place where it's nice, comfortable. Yeah, I know that there's the threat there. There's that opportunity for opposition, but I want you to leave this place. Okay, by the way, that AI Bethel part of it underneath that, that's the sovereignty of God test. When you live in the middle of the threat of life, is God really God in your life? Is he really all-powerful in your life, that's a growth opportunity for you when you come up against those threats. That's not enough. God doesn't just say, leave there. We'll go to a safer place. He takes him to a more dangerous place. It's a different kind of danger. He moves him out there into the middle of the desert and takes away the food. God regularly positions us to grow our faith. I'm going to camp out here for just a second. Last night, had the opportunity to go hear this guy, this singer. His name is Guy Penrod. Um, honestly, I don't think I'd ever heard any of his music before last night. It was a great, great concert. Okay? I like the guy because he just looks like a rebel. Okay? Well, there's two reasons. First of all, he's got long gray hair. He's about my age, and he has hair. That, that's a plus already. <laughs> Uh, but he's let it grow real long, rebel kind of guy. I like that. Um, but man, this guy can sing. He used to sing with the Gaithers and I think the Gaither vocal band. And uh, so he was doing a concert in Beaumont and uh, we had the opportunity to go. It was a great evening. And, and he opened the, the first half, about a little over an hour's worth of singing. Uh, he was selling his newest album. Uh, and that is an album where he just sings hymns. And I'm so glad that he opened that way. He spent some time doing Christmas uh, st- uh, songs on the backside of it. But on the opening side, he sang just a bunch of old hymns. And most of us kind of lose sight of some of the hymns. But he took us to one. I think that he said it was his dad's favorite hymn. And I want to read some of the words of it for you because it so uh, readily appri- applies to what we're talking about here today. The, here's the way it reads. A wonderful Savior is Jesus, my Lord. A wonderful Savior to me. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock where rivers of pleasure 
I see. Sounds nice and sweet and churchy, doesn't it? Here's the chorus. He hides my soul in the cleft of the rock that shadows a dry, thirsty land. He hides my life in the depths of his love and he covers me there with his hand and he covers me there with his hand. Here's the deal. In the chorus of that song that is repeated over and over as you sing through it is this basic fundamental truth. You cannot appreciate the depth of God's care for you until you find yourself in dry desert places. Now, I'm not saying you can't get it at all, but there's something about being out there in the Negev during the famine and God shows up. It enables you to write songs like that. A wonderful Savior is Jesus, my Lord. Because he took me out of the threat of a school classroom or of a hostile environment at work or out of an emergency room surgery. And he became very real to me. The difference between the two sides of this equation that we're looking at here is that on one side it leads to despair and hopelessness. On the other side, it leads to deepened and you get the vote. You get the vote on how it ends up. Do you see it as I'm going to do my thing or do you see it as I'm going to follow God? And so God takes him from the desert with all of the lessons that could be there and drives him deeper into Egypt. And now his integrity is on the line. This world has a way of challenging our Christian integrity. I'm out of time, so I want to finish this way. All of those opportunities in that middle line point to one truth. I love this because in this crowd, we have people on both sides of this piece of paper. Some here running from God and some here walking with God. But the reality is only God has the ability to take wherever you are and bring you to the point of blessing. <laughs> that's just grace. That's, that's a God thing if there ever was a God thing. Did, did you notice here for Abram? He goes into Egypt and instead of being killed by his wife or by Pharaoh, he gets stuff. Not only does he get stuff, he gets an escort out of the country. And then we get to chapter 13 where it says this. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot went with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. And God takes him and his choices, whether on his own or with God, he takes all of that, he blesses Abram, and then Abram, listen to me carefully now, hightails it to the last point of contact he had with God. You can go home. If you're here today and you've been on that wandering away from God on the left side of this, you can go home. 
And I would encourage you to find that place in your own history with God when God was very real to you. And if he doesn't seem so real today and you find yourself in falling faith today, go home with God. Return to the place God met you. Before it's all said and done, you and I will have multiple opportunities to strengthen our faith or to fall. Chances are good every one of us is at a crossroads right now where we're making the choice, will we follow God or not? How will it be with you? Let's pray. And so, Father, we ask that you take this message Show us your grace, please. Show us your mercy. But be as forceful as you need to be to get us at the right spot. Help us to choose well. For those who are here today struggling with the situations of their life, And the fog of the situational focus has choked out the light that is you. Break through it all. Be who you are. Do your best for them even now. For those of us struggling with the courage to live our faith out in a very dangerous world, help us. Grow us. Do so today as our prayer in Jesus' name.